As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Nathaniel Lloyd, host of Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. Join us every two weeks as we explore the blind spots in our past, uncovering mysteries, exposing hoaxes, and shedding light on obscurities. For the past is a dark and mysterious continent, and looking back, we are but explorers searching for meaning. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and almost any podcast app. I hope you'll check out the show. California True Crime is a podcast that sometimes deals with heinous acts of violence towards other individuals. This podcast may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Back to part two of Dorothea Puente on California true crime. With me again is Jessica. Hi, how are you, Jessica? I'm good. How about you? Excellent. In our first episode, we talked about uh, Dorothea Puente's early life growing up uh, and some of the trials and tribulations, her early run-ins with the law, leading her up to convictions for forgery, theft, and prostitution. Uh, we had just ended talking about Esther Busby and her poisoning and eventual fatality, and the number one suspect being Dorothea Puente. So now in 1982, Dorothea again is arrested by the police for the drugging uh, of victims and stealing from those people. So the same sort of behavior. Yeah, except she ratchets it up a little bit. Instead of drugging people and just sending them to the hospital and things disappearing around it, she gets arrested because she actually drugs strangers and steals from them um now malcolm mckenzie is one of these victims uh, he's drinking in a place called the zebra club which is also in midtown when he meets a woman named dorothea who expresses interest in seeing his place uh, which was nearby when they return to his apartment she fixes him a drink and soon he finds himself frozen on the sofa so he describes it as like he can't move. But he's kind of, he's aware. He's aware. He can see her. He can see what she's doing, but she's, yeah. she, it really is like a, his description is kind of like out of a movie. Your body's frozen and you see yeah. the person. Now, uh, Dorothea starts packing up money and valuables from around the apartment. He, she even pulls a ring off of his finger and uh, puts it all into a suitcase she brought. And once eventually he's able to move, he calls the police and they soon catch up with her. Uh, she had tried to pass two of Malcolm's checks all at a local bar. So she'd, he'd, she'd stolen his checkbook, forges out his signature, and then then cashes him. Uh, she's questioned by police. She says that actually she was given those checks by Malcolm. She also claims to be 72 years old. 
at this time, she's only 53. So as we talked about before, she's full on pushing this. Aging herself up. Right, exactly. In a con job type thing. Right. Um, she also claims to have a medical condition where she doesn't remember her actions. So in this case, um, she's stealing from this guy, but she's not necessarily trying to murder him. No. I'm, not that this is okay, just that it's a little different than what she does later. Right, and this is this is kind of a, a ramping up. Um, so she she went from you know making her charges sick, and while they're incapacitated, stealing things. Um, a lot of the reports of her stealing, they're stealing petty cash or stealing valuables that she can quickly get rid of. This is this is totally different. This is her going to a bar to pick up a strange Stranger, man. Yeah. And what does she look like at this time? Because I know she's aging herself up. Does she have already the? She looks like the typical, um, when you, you think of Dorothea Puente, you have like the white hair and the big glasses and the mm-hmm. kind of like sunken in cheeks. And she, she, that's the way she appears now. She kind of dresses this part. Um, a lot of people talk about the, the amount of makeup she wore, um, really heavy into perfume. So she still likes all of the. Yeah. She likes, she, yeah, she likes the same thing she's dressing. Um, even up to the time when the police arrest her in LA, they, Everyone talks about the way she dresses. So it's almost like a costume to her. Yeah. Now, she also attacks a woman named Irene Gregory at a beauty parlor who had fallen. Uh, the woman I did identified herself as Betty Peterson. And she had met Irene recently and had been helping her getting around in a daily routine. So the story is is that Irene is at this beauty parlor and with, with Betty. It's Dorothea. But... Um, she, she's going by Betty Peterson different now, alias. different, completely different alias. Uh, Irene and Betty had been doing errands and they were down at the, down for Irene's weekly visit to the beauty parlor. Now, Irene had fallen. Betty gives her two pills and told her to lie down and rest. Irene would then say later that Betty acted and sounded like a real nurse. She had taken her blood pressure. She, she acted like like a, a nurse at a hospital or a doctor. Uh, now we'd already seen that Dorothea had, had been pretending to be a nurse right. and a lawyer for, right. For a long time. Uh, hours later when I re- Irene regains consciousness, she finds money gone and a diamond ring as well as a thousand dolamine pills missing. Now that's something to remember because dolamine is a drug that will come in later right. as the, as the story progresses. And that's a tranquilizer, tranquilizer, right? Yeah, it's a heavy, Used for heavy insomnia and things right, like that. Right, and there and it has a lot of benefit, uh, beneficial uses, mm-hmm. but in extreme doses, it can it can kill. Uh, she first calls her daughter. So this is Irene. First calls her daughter, and then the police. Uh, dolamine is a sedative. It's uh, like you just said. It's used to treat. Difficulty with sleeping, but it can, the side effects are, can cause paranoid, uh, paranoia or uh, suicidal thoughts. It can also impair memory and judgment and coordination. Now, uh, combined with other substances, particularly alcohol, it can slow the breathing and possibly lead to death. So it's, it's, it's a very dangerous, very dangerous. Um, this fact, this drug is actually going to factor greatly into how uh, Dorothea will eventually be brought down due to the fact that it was uh, became her weapon of choice. Um, she's actually going to use these hundred pills over the course of her spree. Uh, now, uh, the hairdresser knew Betty's real name as Dorothea Montalvo, and again, the police were in pursuit. So the attack you mentioned wasn't a full attack on Irene. It was the attack that she had. Right, it's not a physical attack. It's not like it's not like Betty, i.e., Dorothea, physically assaulted oh, okay. her in the beauty okay. pa- parlor. But Irene fell, and and Dorothea took advantage of that. Oh, so that was the leading part, okay. right? And so I think when I use the term attack, I, it's it's I see that poisoning is still an attack well, on absolutely, her, absolutely, right? Yeah. And so this had been building up. Now, uh, again, the circumstances were in her favor. Because there's not enough evidence to arrest her, but reports are made again to the police. So she, even though we have witnesses, even though she's using a false name, even though she's fingered by the beauty, uh, the beautician who knew who she was, who knew who she was, these are just stacking up and stacking up and stacking up. And she's still living at fourteen twenty six F Street. Yeah, she's still living in fourteen twenty six F Street. And the family 
that she was living with. Uh, they're eventually they're there. right. They're eventually going to move out, um, and Dorothy will take take over both floors. They'll actually move uh, out of the area. The husband will still come back and take care of a, a few things, but Dorothea kind of assumes, if not out and out ownership, the house she takes over both floors and kind of runs them as if they were hers. Okay. Now, more and more cases are starting to stack up in the early 80s. There's the case of Claire uh, Malerville and Loretta uh, Chalmier, who had never met each other, but were both used uh, using in-home care provided by the Quality Care Nursing Agency. Each of these women found that they were missing personal checks and belongings. Not all, not long after, their checks were beginning to show up with forged, forged signatures on them. Uh, and Dorothea Gosling, who, after eating and drinking food prepared for her by her in-home caregiver, is, would fall suddenly asleep, only to wake up to find more personal effects missing. So it just keeps happening. It keeps happening and, no and happening. One is able to stop her. No. Uh, in this case, it's $3,500 worth of gold jewelry. All of these women had something in common. Uh, their care- caregiver was Dorothea Montavo Puente. The problem for Sacramento District Attorney was that in order to get the cases in front of a judge, there would need to be testimony from the victims. And in many cases, these elderly and infirm patients could not or would not make the trip to the county courthouse to testify to help make this case against Dorothea. In the end, it was only Malcolm McKenzie who was willing to make a trip to stand in court. I think what's so frustrating about this case at this point especially is, A, that obviously no one can stop her and it doesn't seem to be anything anyone can do, but... It's how terrible care is for the elderly, especially people who don't have money or, you know, the amount of money they need to be taken care of by someone who isn't going to hurt them or steal their things or. Right. That, that idea that just a simple background check. I mean, she already had a criminal conviction. Right. She always already under probation to not work as a caregiver, but a simple background check could have helped and, and saved some of these people's lives. And that it wasn't done. And I can't imagine, I mean, not to this extent, but how many people are experiencing something similar. People just ripping them off and taking their things. I looked up and I saw that, and this is 2014 statistic, but 20% of seniors over 65 are living in poverty in California. That's, I mean, that is amazing. They're just all at risk. And that's, and that's, just, and that's 20, 20% of elderly that were pulled. I mean, who knows how many people... Right. Right, and the poverty level was sixteen thousand dollars a year in this in this uh, in the nineteen eighties. Sixteen thousand dollars in twenty fourteen. Oh, in twenty fourteen. The article I read, yeah, which I mean, isn't is really low. So even if you have twenty thousand dollars a year, even that's in the, not really that no. much better or different. So even in the smaller towns, yeah, you know, Central Valley towns, um, certainly not in the Bay Area or in Southern California, but Northern California, Central Valley, sixteen thousand dollars. That's you can't you can't live. You can't yeah. make rent on that. How desperate you must be, how much help you must need, and then you can't afford it. And with that, that's easy to understand why some of these people would not necessarily ask as many. You have somebody that's willing to come into your home, right. that's willing to take care of you, that's willing to do these things. You don't necessarily ask questions. And I can understand some of these agencies. I'm not excusing it, but I understand these agencies that are desperate to find somebody that will do this work. This, you know, and a lot of times it's a thankless job. Um you have somebody comes along who who tells you everything you want to hear, who seems to know what they're talking about, but is willing to do that work. I can see them not asking too many questions then. Yeah. So now it was at this time, so this early 80s, that Dorothea is living in her home in 1426 F Street. Uh, she's living with a name, a woman named Ruth Monroe. Now, Ruth was friendly, a warm woman with a large circle of friends, and she had four grown children. A few of them were living in Sacramento at the time. She retired from Gemco Department Store in Sacramento. Now, I remember Gem- Gemco as a child. Gemco, really? yeah, Gemco is actually uh, for if if you don't know, Gemco was Target before Target. So Gemco was a kind of a California-based uh, department store that would eventually be bought out by Target in the 1986. And uh, most targets, 
that were in California since the late 80s were actually Gemco's. So in the same building? Same building. Actually, okay. they would renovate it. They, they pulled down the big, big GM and it's actually a blue and yellow logo. I don't remember those at all. It, 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 um, it had, yeah, it was kind of not necessarily quite as, uh, uh, clean as Target. Gemco, <laughs> uh, Gemco had always kind of like a little, more of a Walmart feel than a Target feel, I think, is, I don't know how to explain that. Now, Ruth's husband, Harold, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, The strain on the family from his cancer diagnosis was great, and the two often fought. It was one night when Harold was out drinking at the Flame Club, also in Midtown, where he met a woman named Dorothea. He actually would eventually remark on the similarities between Dorothea and Ruth and thought that the two would get along, so he introduces them, and they eventually become pretty quick friends. Soon, Harold takes a turn for the worse and has to be ho- hospitalized because his cancer kind of turns ter- terminal. Now, with her husband in full-time care and her children's all grown and kind of out of the house, Ruth will eventually go into business with Dorothea. How old uh, is Ruth? Ruth is in her, I, I believe at this time, she's in late mid to late 60s. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, she's not, she's not young, but... By all accounts, Ruth was outgoing. Right. She was loving. She had a huge group of friends and very active, um, calling, visiting. The um, her her family will remark on how close they all are. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes, her her son Bill will will stop by on the way home and visit. Now, uh, this business they start actually is a catering company. They operate out of the kitchen of the Round the Corner Tavern in Midtown. Now, Midtown is literally the middle of Sacramento. It's an area just outside of downtown. And that's where the house is too, right? Right, right. So it's all kind of around there. So if you think of Sacramento with the capital in the center, Midtown is just slightly, uh, I believe, north of that. Yeah, and, and I think it, a lot of people live and work in that area. Right. Work at the capital, you live in Midtown if you can afford it. Right. But it has a lot of big, beautiful like Victorian houses. and. yeah. And and it's a, it's a home to uh, a a lot of restaurants and things to do. It, there's a lot of nightlife and local shops around there. Uh, and actually, now it's become quite the like the the trendy area for nightlife in Sacramento. Now Ruth's going to take money out of her savings account, and on Dorothea's instant insistence, they open up a jo- joint checking account to run the business from. Uh, they rent the kitchen space at Round the Corner for about one hundred fifty dollars a month. It was also at this time that Dorothea's offered Ruth a place to stay. She lets her know, well, your husband's in the hospital, yeah. uh, long-term care. You don't have anyone at home. Kids are out. Why don't you move in with me? And then, again, you know, Dorothea's got a big house. I mean, at this point, she's living in 1426 by herself. So she has a full f- first floor. and Exactly. Now, Easter Sunday, April 11th, 1982, Ruth's three sons help her move in. Uh, for the first few weeks, Ruth once goes about her daily routines, the same as she always does, visits with friends and family, dinners with family, and, and then again working at the new business. There comes a turn when Ruth starts to become ill. Friends started to comment on her appearance. She starts to look more worn down. Uh, a woman who normally makes weekly trips to the beauty parlor and she's always taking care of herself starts to look really kind of ragged. So it happens kind of slow. Well, or just sort of all at once. This this is where it's happening almost all. I mean, over the course of a couple of weeks, right? So it's not instantaneous. But it's a big change, right? It's it's yeah. It's a it's a lot lot of stuff happening at one time. Yeah. Which I think maybe outsiders could see that. Well, your husband's in care facility. You're started a new business. You're living with you know a veritable stranger. Uh, her friends actually ask her if they could take her to the doctor or emergency room. At every, and every time Ruth says. No, that's okay. Dorothea can take her. So we're already starting to see that path that we've seen time and time again. Now, once her friend uh, Carmela Lombardo, who had called Ruth to check on her, was surprised to hear that her friend had no memory of recent events. So she was calling her, kind of chatting her up and saying how things. Yeah. But Ruth couldn't remember what happened just a few days before. Scary. Right. Now, if we remember, Dalmine's side effect was loss of memory. Ruth told Carmela that she could not remember her actions and did not know what she'd ate or how she'd gotten to bed. Now, on, on April 27th, so this is just two weeks later, 
a little over two weeks. Bill Clausen, which is Ruth's, uh, one of Ruth's sons, came to visit. He found his mother in bed and was incoherent. Dorothea had said the doctor had come by and given her a shot to make her relax and sleep. Bill commented that his mom would be all right and would feel better because Dorothea was there to take care of her. So she's kind of conned several people. Not oh, just the person she's hurting. No. I mean, she's hurting all of these people, but... From the, the research and then uh, interviews with Bill, the son, and some of the court records that, that kind of illustrate this relationship, she had everyone snowed. I mean, Bill himself, seeing his mother stricken, says, it's okay, Dorothea's here to take care of you. Well, and he doesn't know. No. She's hurt other people, no. so... No, 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 I mean, somebody who genuinely cares for his mother, uh, who sees somebody that his mother has become friends with taking care of her. I mean, I know that would put my mind at ease. Yeah. And it probably doesn't help that she doesn't look like someone who would hurt you. Again, yeah. This is a woman who is in her uh, Mm mid-50s, pretending to be somebody in her 70s, who dresses and acts like somebody's grandmother. I mean, it's it's a perfect disguise. Now, um, Ruth will die the, the very next morning. So it's the, the, the morning after Sun Bill stop, right, okay. stops by to visit. Then Ruth uh, passes away the next morning, uh, and Dorothea is the one that calls and tells her family, which in hindsight, I can't imagine what that would feel like to know that the person that killed my mother. Right, after it, they find out right, what is, happened to her. Right, exactly. Her family uh, was perplexed by the rapid decline of a healthy senior citizen. Ruth had always been in pretty good health. I mean, again, stressed, and, and there's a lot of things going on. Yeah, in life, yeah, right. in her life. Uh, the coroner actually report comes back and it rules the death as a suicide. Uh, and this was something Ruth was emphatically against. She, in fact, her, all of her sons, uh, her children will comment on the fact that Ruth was always against suicide. Do you know what made him rule it a suicide? I, I found that kind of odd when I was reading this. No, I don't. There was no, I, I didn't find any evidence from the medical examiner of why specifically. If I had to guess, I would say it was, it was a woman, a senior citizen who was under a lot of stress with an overdose of over-the-counter medication. Right. But I mean, she wasn't really, she hadn't been well. Her friends knew that. Her family knew that. But mm-hmm. on top of that, she wasn't remembering things. So I, don't, I just don't know what made him rule that instead of, let's say, an accidental death or an accidental overdose. You know, she maybe took, took too much medicine thinking she hadn't taken it yet. or Right, not remembering that she'd yeah. already taken a dose. No, that would... But Just I curious. and no, and that's it's a it's a great point because I think this is this is that weird gray area where Dorothea has lived the majority of her life, and I think that's this is an example of how she could get away with these crimes. I mean, it's easy to look back in hindsight and sure. say, "Oh, yeah. here's somebody who's who's doing all these bad things," but I think at the time those questions keep coming up, and they just put enough doubt on it that Dorothea can slip away. Then right. Um, now the medical examiner will find that when he exam- examines Ruth's stomach contents, that she hadn't eaten in a few days and that there was a re- remains of a creme de menthe, which is a cream m- mint liqueur and the alcohol and the mint will actually mask the taste of the drugs in the drink. Okay. So she could be drinking that and not knowing it. Now, again, hindsight. Right. Yeah. We know she is. It's not until after the funeral that the family will find out that the bank account that Dorothea and Ruth started jointly has been cleaned out of all of its money. Now, it's at this same time in 1982 that Dorothea is charged with the poisoning and forgeries from 1981. So it it took the DA an entire year to build this case to get the witnesses to uh, to get the witness to testify, Mr. McKenzie. Oh, that's right. There's only. There's really only, yeah, yeah, exactly, only one. And um, the DA of Sacramento at the time is a guy named William D. Wood. Uh, he's pretty candid about the, the the trouble building this case to begin with because of the evidence, because he has to convince a court that she's guilty. Now, um, they were sure that, well, they, being Bill, the son, and his family, they're absolutely sure that this woman that's being reported in local papers, the Sacramento Bee, that has been charged with poisoning local people and stealing from them is the same woman that poisoned their mom and eventually will kill her. Uh, but again, 
this comes just under the wire because by the time Bill reports it to the DA, Dorothea had taken a plea deal with the court. She's actually going to plead guilty to charges of forgery and federal check, uh, forgery of federal checks, theft, and grand larceny. And the definition of grand larceny, which I've heard that term constantly, but I never really understood what it meant. Uh, it means the theft of property above a certain amount. So in this case, because the, the amount was over $4,000 in total, then it, it becomes a felony. Uh, she's eventually going to be sentenced to four years and eight months in federal prison. D.A. Wood could not arrest her for Ruth's murder because of at by the time that he found out about the suspicions of the family, he'd already went to court adding as many of, of the victims of Dorothea's poisoning and theft as possible at that time. I'm not sure I understand why he couldn't arrest her for a separate crime. Uh, so, uh, William Wood, the DA that we're talking about, he actually wrote a book called the bone garden. Uh, that's all about this case. It's a really, really good book. Um, especially because he goes into a lot of the intricacies of the court case. And, and in this case, he talks about the idea that he had, um, a burden of proof and Mm -hmm. that wasn't necessarily always there. You can't go to court with suspicions. You actually have to have proof. And that was somewhat lacking in this case, even though there's all of these breadcrumbs that it had to be a strong enough case that he could get her convicted of that. And then by the time he, he started to accrue all of this, um, she'd already made her plea deal. So the idea was she was already being, already being sent to prison. Yeah. Um, she was behind bars and, and as far as that office was, was concerned that that was a case closed. Now, if at some point in the future, and this will come back to play, if at some point in the future they had more evidence, then they could charge her with Ruth's murder. But this gave him a little bit of leeway to collect more evidence as they went along. Okay, so she's safely behind bars. Right, exactly. And then in the meantime, we can charge her with new crimes. Now, none of those people had died other than Esther uh, Busby, and that couldn't have been proven beyond a reasonable right. doubt. Happened like a year later? Yes, and they couldn't have proved that it was with Dorothea's, Dorothea's hand. All the other victims had recovered. In fact, the Sacramento Bee ran an article, and the headlines uh, read, uh, quote, woman who slipped Mickey draws five years. And this article is what actually will lead Bill, Ruth's son, to contact the DA. But according to the medical examiner's ruling of suicide, Dorothea could not be prosecuted at that time. So... Ruth and her family would get their day in court, but it wouldn't be until 1988 when seven more bodies were dug up uh, in the yard of Dorothea Montalvo Puente at 1426 F Street. Now, Dorothea is sent to prison, uh, but she's only going to serve three years of her sentence. She's released due to good behavior, but a condition of her parole so that she is not able to work in a boarding house or care facility. So she's not allowed to go back to what she was doing. Sort of. Because it says boarding house or care facility, but what she got her changes it up exactly, right? and what got her sent away in the first place was working as an in-home care. Okay. So again, there's that gray area. Right. Now, while in prison, she's going to begin a correspondence with Everson Gilmuth, who, which is going to actually continue after she's released. So, so they're writing back and forth. Yeah, like pen pal. It's like a like a, a prison pen pal situation. Now, Everson is from Oregon. He's a 77-year-old widower who lived in an Airstream trailer pulled by his red Ford pickup truck. Now, he spends time working on wood carvings and moving around a lot. He's also taken to writing to inmates at women's prisons. Uh, it's That's how he meets uh, Dorothea Puente. Now, they struck up a, a pen pal relationship that develops into something a lot more. Uh, when in 1985 she's finally released... She, he drives, uh, Everson drives from Oregon all the way to Fresno, uh, which if you're not familiar with Fresno, Fresno is located practically in the middle of California, uh, and it's in the middle of the kind of the central valley of California. He picks Dorothea up and upon her release from a halfway house where she was living after she was released from after prison. After three years. Right. So she's from three years, she gets released to a halfway house to kind of get acclimated. And then that's where Everson picks her up. Now, uh, it was in 1985 that Everson's sister, Reba, received a letter from the couple about their life. Now, his sister lived in Oregon, um, and Everson was pretty uh, upfront about the fact that he was going to uh, pick up Dorothea in California, and they would start a life together. Uh, 
some of the some of them were friendly. The letters. Right, the letters. And this is where it we kind of see the other side too. Some of them were threatening. Uh, and these are letters from Everson. He details how he was done with his old life and he wanted nothing more to do with his family. And these are all letters from him. Right. Okay. Um, eventually, there was a letter from someone named Irene that said she and Everson, uh, she was Everson's new girl. And that he had suffered from a small stroke, but everything was okay. And now they were coming to Sacramento to get the rest of his possessions from Dorothea. And then they'd be out of state. Now, Reba, Everson's sister, knew that her brother would travel around a lot. And he was kind of, um, he was a bit eccentric. Mm -hmm. And that he was an adult and he could. He's doing his own thing. Do his own thing. Um, And and I don't, I, I get the feeling that he was kind of a different kind of person, you know. Um, lived in a trailer and drove around and carved wood and enjoying life. Exactly. Now, at this point, Everson's never heard from again. And she uses the name Irene. The person who wrote the letter. Yeah. Yeah. She uses the the name Irene when in, in and in, that was her friend's name, right? Right. So ever Everson's not heard from again. Uh, it's going to be later revealed that she had killed him. In the same manner that she she's been known for poisoning, and by she we we know it's Dorothea Puente. Right. Once uh, Everson's dead, she pays a handyman named Ishmael Flores to come over and build a man-sized box to store some old things that she wanted to get rid of, and that's how she describes it to Ishmael. It says, "I I need a man-sized box, person-sized box, right, person-sized box." Uh, Flores builds the box and then he leaves it at the house. He also ends up buying a red pickup truck from Dorothea. It's Everson's red pickup truck. Um, so he is going to use the pickup truck and then gets paid by Dorothea to dispose of the heavy box once it's loaded up. She tells him, Dorothea tells Ishmael, hey, we're going to drive this to a storage facility. But on the way, Dorothea says, no, nah, don't worry about it. Instead, just drop it on the shores of the Sacramento River, and that's where the the currents will, are rising in the middle of winter, and it's going to be swept away, this box. Yeah, and for those who don't know, the Sacramento River is the largest river in California. It's a really, really big river. Uh, th- California gets 35% of its water supply from it, and it feeds a lot of other rivers and um, dams, things like that. It comes from, um, from the Klamath Mountains. It's about 384 miles long. It feeds into the delta and out into the bay. And... In this case, it was a, a method of disposal of Emerson's body, which was in the box. Um, before Ishmael had ever built the box, Dorothea had paid a friend's boyfriend to move Emerson's body and told him that the man had died in his sleep and she needed to get rid of the body uh, and it, because it was starting to de- de- decay and the neighbors were starting to complain about the smell. So, uh, Jesus Meza was the boyfriend of a woman named Brenda Trio, who was a friend of Dorothea and sometimes roommate. She was in and out of county jail a lot and had become friends with Dorothea. And Meza basically did what he was asked. So, he came over, he moves the body, and he's paid in cash, and then he leaves. Uh, eventually, that's the box that... Ishmael moves then in the truck down the the, um, Sacramento River. Well, and it sounds weird, but I think there's probably a lot of things that happen like that that don't seem on the up and up but are kind of normal for places where people might not have as much money or access to things. You know, I mean, they go to underground doctors or people who say they're nurses. And And in this case, it seems like from some of the research that Jesus Meza had been in trouble with the law before. I don't. I don't think he, doing something illegal was outside of his purview, and Brenda knowing Dorothea and having spent time in the house, and then again in and out of the county jail. I think that that the like you said, somebody offers you cash and you're in need of cash. They sell you a line about somebody passing away of natural causes, and then okay. Yeah, you believe it. Right. The the body's in a state of uh, decomposition. When the when the body is eventually found, uh, they actually find the body on the river, the or edge of the Sacramento River. It's found by a passerby. It's eventually examined by police. The body's in such a state of decomposition that's hard for investigators to identify. 
Uh, eventually later, much later, it'll be determined that it was in fact Everson Gilmuth. But um, that's by that point, Dorothy had already been arrested for the bodies found at 1426 F Street. So much later. Much later. Okay. Um, this is um, this is 85. She's not arrested till 88. Well, I mean, he's not from California. No. And I'm assuming not been... Uh, but her, his sister probably didn't go to the police and say he was missing or anything like that. So... No, in fact, he... Um, There's no reason to think that's who it is. No, Reba herself, Everson's sister says, we thought he was living with this other person. And right. given her brother's kind of eccentric lifestyle, it's, it's easy to understand why... It went unnoticed. Right, right. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So this brings us to the case of Alvaro. Bert Montoya. Now, I'm just going to call him Bert from here on out. That's what he was known for in the area. Now, he suffered from an untreated psychosis, a condition that made it hard for him to maintain a traditional life. So he resigned to live in the homeless shelters and on the streets of Sacramento. I didn't really know what psychosis was. I mean, I've heard it before, so I looked it up. It said that it was a mental disorder characterized by a disconnection from reality. Um, so you have delusions and hallucinations. You might talk to yourself or become easily agitated. And Bert, and, and that, that is Bert to a T. Uh, most people in the area knew him. He was kind of a bigger guy, uh, kind of stood out in a crowd. But people really liked him. Um, they understood that he, he had suffered from these delusions and he could be sweet one minute and then really kind of off-putting the next. Mm-hmm. But he was somebody that, that everybody in that area knew you you saw Bert you you know you recognized him instantly now he was placed in a boarding house that specializes in hard cases and alcoholics it was a place with a pretty good reputation among social workers at the time uh, and care agencies it was also run by Dorothea Puente <laughs> who was still on probation from her last conviction and was forbidden from running a boarding house or working in a nursing care facility so she changes it or, I mean, really begins it at this time, I suppose, because she wasn't running that out of her house before. Right. At this point, she's, by the time Bert comes into her sphere, mm-hmm. she's been running this for a couple of years. Oh, so there's been other people. Right. Uh, Bert, like I said, Bert was well known and liked in the area. He made an impression on Judy uh, Moyes, uh, who was a social worker at the Volunteers of America, the care agency that had placed him at 1426 F Street. Given the fact that Bert was known uh, for his transient lifestyle and would often come and go from shelters uh, in the area, his disappearances um, would never have been noticed if not for Judy. Now, Judy went and questioned Dorothea about Bert and where he was. Dorothea will say he actually moved out of state. When pressed later, she says that he actually moved in with a relative and will move to Mexico. Now, this kind of uh, back and forth between Judy and Dorothea are going to continue until Judy decides eventually to report it to the police and file an actual missing persons report. Now, this highlights again this continuing tragedy of this case. Because of the nature of her victims, those being elderly or homeless or with addiction problems, Dorothea is able to get away with for so long because they're not victims that people pay attention to 
on the nightly news. Right. They're not always accounted for. Someone's right. not always watching out for them. Right, exactly. Uh, and this would allow her to operate longer than um, some other serial killers in America. Now, even though she's on probation uh, that had been extended to 1990 due to the 1982 convictions for forgery and theft and was not supposed to operate a care facility, the state had no real way of making sure that, that any of this actually got done. The care agencies had sent her clients were underfunded and did not perform background checks. According to probation officers, Dorothea was always accommodating when they would stop by for their visits. There's even stories of her actually making home-cooked home food for them. Uh, was always super pleasant. Um, but remember that she lived in the second story right. on F Street. Now, the clients all lived in the first floor. And since it had a separate entrance, once the officers came by and visit, they could only, they assumed that the people living on the first floor was not connected had at all. Had nothing to do with her. Had nothing to do. And and when pressed, Dorothea would say, that's, you know, that's somebody else is running that. Right. And legally, they're not allowed to go into somebody else's house Unless they have a warrant. Now, when pressed, she says that she's living alone and those people on the first floor had nothing to do with her. Now, there is an agency that licenses care facilities, but when the agency was called on to investigate, they found no clients and only Dorothea and a person that she claimed was her cousin. Now, she also stated that she did not run a boarding house, but instead offered only temporary care uh, for those people that needed it and charged a monthly free fee of $350. Now, again, this is confusing because she did offer care, but it wasn't right. in-home care. It wasn't a boarding house. It was temporary care. I looked at and that's the weird loophole. It's temporary care. And there is no definition of what that temporary care would entail. So she's found a way to do this anyway. Exactly. And legally. Uh, right. And, and not, not just legally. Um, in fact, Peggy uh, Nickerson, who is a... Caseworker from one of these agencies, she actually admits to the Sacramento Bee that she misled inspectors that were sent to Dorothea's house to check up on her because she was afraid that her clients would lose their homes and they'd have nowhere else to live. So you have agencies actively trying to mislead the authorities to make sure that their clients have, and I understand that if you're taking care of these people, you want to make sure that these people have a place to live and, and some place to go, some right. place that's safe. Hopefully. Right, exactly. But as we all know at this point, I mean, it, this, they're sending they're sending potential victims to to a serial killer. Right. But she was probably sending people all over to all different homes. Right. Not exactly. Just to no. This one. No. Now, on the morning of uh, the first police visit is November seventh, nineteen eighty eight. Now, this is after Judy had filed a missing persons report on Bert. Um, the police eventually will get there on November 7, 1988. Now, the police interview Dorothea and a man named John Sharp, who is a tenant at the boarding house, about Bert's disappearance. They both have said that he'd moved uh, with family into Mexico and was picked up by a relative some time ago, and he hadn't been heard from since. When the police officer finishes his interview, he leaves. Now, once he was outside of the house, kind of on the street, he notices John approaching him, and this is where John gave the officer a note. That says Dorothea is making John lie about Bert. So this is this is what caught me about the He's story. Trying to tip police off, right? But it's like a movie, yeah, where you have the person who really slips the guy a note saying he's making she's making me lie. That's also a lot of fear, right? Of this woman, that somebody would lie for her like that. Well, yeah, or be afraid to tell the truth when a police officer is present, right? So we're seeing kind of a hint of how she could keep them, you know, in line. Now, the officer gave the note to Detective John Cabrera and Terry Brown. They would also be involved in the investigation of the Oak Park killer, who is Morris Solomon Jr., that was operating at the same time in close to the same area. So Oak Park is not very far away from Midtown Alkali Flat. And the detectives would have believed that a missing person would just be another victim of Solomon Jr., and not suspect an older woman who looked like somebody's grandmother yeah. of committing these crimes. Well, that's probably a lot of people being murdered or hurt. Right. You have to separate it all out. Right. Later on the day of November 11th, 1988, Officer or Detective Cabrera and Brown are going to go interview Dorothea about the reports 
And now they're, they're also going back through the records and realizing that this Dorothea Puente has a lot of other reports, suspicious reports. So they're going to go and interview her. Um, they notice that there are reports of decaying smells. There's um, odd digging. So these are neighbors, people close by who are calling the police? Yeah. Yeah. When, when they really start digging, Cabrera finds out that there's a lot of rumors in social working circles, some about her. That she's abusive, that she's loud, that you know she screams at her tenants. Mm-hmm. They uh, now her response when they question about this is she says it's fish emulsion for her. Now again, remember this is alkali flat, so the the soil is not good for growing things. Um, so what you would do is you would you would mix in like ground up fish uh-huh. into the soil to give it nutrients so that you'd be able to ground to to grow things. They're actually going to ask Dorothea what they would find if they started digging in her backyard. Uh, she says they're welcome to, and she even offers them a shovel. What will happen is over the next two hours as they start digging, and um, the officers will actually uncover um, a leg bone. They actually immediately take Dorothea into custody, and they take her down to the police station. Mm-hmm. They interview her for two hours, and she never once breaks Never once misspoke, never once says something contradictory to what she's already told police. She just keeps it together. Right. Now, here's the weird part um, that I didn't know about Sacramento until recently is that, weirdly, it's not unheard of for bodies to be found in yards of some Sacramento homes. And the reason why is, especially near the capital or midtown, due to the nature of the city and the age of the city and these pocket communities... Uh, there is a legacy of families not having enough money to bury their dead uh, in the cemeteries. Right. So they would bury the they would bury their dead in in the yard in family plots. Now this is not this is hunt you know sure. turn of century yeah. time. This is not happening in nineteen seventies. But so the odd body being dug up is not unusual. I mean, it's not an everyday occurrence, but it would be something that the you know the local archaeologists or historians would come down and, and take a look at. Um, so this kindly grandmother saying, I have no idea how that body got in my backyard. It's, you know. And they can't prove otherwise. They can't prove otherwise. There's no actual evidence yet. Again, is going to lead to this gray area where Dorothy is going to kind of slip through the cracks. Now, after some time, Dorothy is actually escorted back to her house, but there's a police officer posted in front. The next morning, more police will show up with equipment, and they're going to start excavating her backyard. Now, uh, this is going to attract more people, obviously. Yeah. It also attracts news agencies, photographers, newspaper, the local television stations. And she actually will go to the police and plead that the growing crowd is making her nervous, and she asks to be escorted by one of her tenants to the local Clarion Hotel. And the Clarion Hotel is just a couple of blocks away. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this time, it was a really, I won't say upscale place, but it was a nice hotel. I had a chance to stay there when I was a kid a few times, and they had like a really nice pool. And I mean, it's a kind of a fancier hotel. So she tells the officers, I'm, I'm meeting some family. I'm, I'm going to go and meet them there and get away from this mess. Can I please go? Um, the police actually allow her to leave, but they tell her don't go too far. Yeah, I saw a picture today. I was looking at a picture of her. The one where she's leaving her house. Right. And the police officer is kind of holding, the, I think, the door open for her. Yeah, and that has the, uh, the I think there's an umbrella above yeah, her. Yeah, it looks like it's raining. She right. has like a pink umbrella. Right. And a, a really like wool, red. Yeah, the red um, coat. Swing coat. Right. Long kind of peacoat with big buttons. Right. And this really uh, dark red purse on her arm. And she's got uh, beautiful red shoes on. She's right. still in character. No, and, and, and um, what's funny is that that purse, um, they will find out later, but um, Detective Cabrera will mention in interviews that what they didn't know at the time was that purse was stuffed with $3,000 in cash. And that was her, she knew they were onto her, so this was her getaway. Now, from the Clarion Hotel, she will flee to Stockton, so a, a city that she yeah. previously she lived in for a little, lived in for a little yeah. while, hated. Um, she's actually going to take a a $70 cab ride from Sacramento to, to Stockton, which today is about $149 yeah, for I mean, a tax. Stockton's not far away, but it's not super close either for a cab. No, for a cab. That's, yeah. a, that's a long ride. 
Now, from there, she boards a Greyhound bus for LA. Almost immediately, um, a manhunt is called. Uh, the the police in Sacramento realize that, that the person that is responsible for the body in the backyard, especially soon when more bodies come out, right. is Dorothy Puente. Now, this is a time when where this these crimes take place actually is a benefit because of the fact that it's in Sacramento. You have not only you have local city police, you also have county sheriff and you have FBI. state police and FBI. So almost immediately, these these agencies are called in and the search for her starts. The problem is, uh, where is she going to run to? Mm-hmm. So we know that she's from what we've been talking about. She's comfortable leaving for long periods of time. She's lived in both Northern California and Southern California. We also know that she's run to Reno a few times. Oh, yeah. To get married. Right. And from what she has told other people, she has connections to family in Mexico. Now, that's a lie, but... They don't know. They don't know that. It's not until about a week later that the full extent of her crimes will come to light, and a man in an L.A. bar is going to make the connection that's going to have Dorothea arrested and brought back to Sacramento. Now, over the course of the next week, more and more bodies are being pulled out. So this isn't like the first day they find all seven right. of the remains. Yeah. It, this will be over the process of an entire week. So in November of 1988, Charles uh, Wilgus finds himself in L.A. drinking alone in a dive bar when he meets a woman who introduces herself as Dorothea Johansson. The two start talking about Social Security benefits and how she could get Charles more money if he let her do all the paperwork. Uh, they talk a little longer. They have a few more drinks. They talk about how hard it is living on your own and drank for a while. Um, she tells him a story about being a divorcee, that she's starting out a new life. Um, eventually, what they're going to do is they're going to decide on on a date for the following day. Uh, and then she's going to take him. Uh, she actually asks him for a ride home mm-hmm. to, to her motel on the way home he buys her two chicken dinners i, I thought that was interesting yeah um at a local fast food uh, chicken restaurant and then they make plans for for the next day she doesn't eat the chicken dinners though there's a report that she actually has him buy the dinners and then she takes them home now the reason why is apparently from some of the reports i read was that She'd been living in this motel for almost a week, and that the only thing she'd been eating is Chinese food from the local Chinese takeout. So I guess the chicken dinners were as a, a break for the Chinese Something food. Something new. Right. But it's an odd request that I want you to buy me two dinners and then yeah, not eat them and just take them home. Yeah. It's not until later, after he drops her off at her motel room, that he's back at his own place watching TV, that Charles is going to actually make the connection to the women the woman he's been hanging out with talking to yeah. talking to is on the TV and she's being sought for bodies being found in her own yard in Sacramento. He immediately calls the television station to report it. And then the TV station is actually going to be on the phone to the local police who in turn contacts Sacramento police. So that's local LA police. So the Sacramento police wants to be there when she's actually taken in custody Uh and repair some of the damage from having lost their suspect because at this point it's a week on and the sacramento police and the county sheriff are are coming under a lot of pressure and derision from news agencies in fact the chief of sacramento police was in i believe southern california at a police convention and was constantly being asked about it and he kept blowing it off and saying that you know he didn't know what they were doing and they had made mistakes so probably didn't help that there was a picture of them letting her leave letting her leave right that picture with the bag because of the time sensitive nature of the tip you know charles is supposed to meet her the next day Mm -hmm. they want to get to la as soon as possible and the charter planes that the police normally use or the charter flights, they would not be ready in such a short notice. And this is when Mike Boyd from KCRA Channel 3, which is the local NBC affiliate, uh, he says actually that he can get them a plane if uh, KCRA and himself are allowed on the plane and are allowed to ask questions. Oh. Yeah, and this is where we get into kind of sticky. Now, yeah. now, if you don't know, if you live in Northern California and you're of a certain age, everybody kind of knew Mike Boyd. Um, there's actually he has since passed away, and there's a retrospective that we'll post on our on the show notes 
for this episode, but he was kind of a big deal. I mean, he'd been a lot of um, a lot of reporting for that news station in a lot of key moments in California history. So the police want to get there, so they agree, but there are certain ground rules about how they have to act. So one of those is they were not to ask any questions about the crime at all. They, I would think that might be threatening to their case. Exactly, and that's the the police um, followed the protocol and said that they had they w- would not allow them to to pressure it at all. Yeah, but they could sit there, they could record. So if sh- so, in fact, um, uh, and we'll post this video as well. There is video footage uh, within this Mike Boyd retrospective that shows Dorothea Pointing actually commenting that she didn't she cashed these people's checks, uh-huh. but she didn't kill anyone. But they weren't allowed to ask any questions about the crimes. And so they agreed. Now, this decision is eventually going to haunt them because a lot of news agencies that were not in Sacramento, I, um, we found articles from Modesto, California, from their paper, um, the Modesto Bee, who commented that this was checkbook journalism, that the KCRE paid for this news story. For the interview. Exactly. Now, she's going to be returned and booked one week after she walked away from the scene of her crimes. She's finally going to be brought to trial in 1992. Now, remember this, she was arrested in 1988. It's not going to be until 1992 that she's brought to trial for um, not only the seven bodies that were found in her backyard, but also Everson Gilmuth and uh, Ruth Monroe. So this this is when Ruth Monroe's family feels that they will get their day in court. Now, this is where we start to an entire new chapter of the story because with her arrest and her her brought to court, it it starts another avalanche of, I guess, bureaucratic red tape and fancy lawyering by her defense team. Mm -hmm. They actually get the case moved from Sacramento County into Monterey County. Uh, The trial, when it's all done, even though it's in Monterey County, Sacramento County still has to pay for it. Yeah. So... It actually is going to cost the taxpayers over two million dollars for this for this for case. Trial. Yeah, for her trial and when it's done. Now, her prosecutor is John O'Mara, who is a one-time homicide supervisor for the Sacramento DA's office. Uh, he's eventually going to bring uh, 130 witnesses to the stand, as well as bring the bodies of of Ruth Monroe and Esther Buzzy, as well as Everson Gilmuth into the court. So not only is it just the seven bodies, not mm-hmm. only is it just Everson Gilmuth and Ruth Monroe, but he's going to put bring Esther Busby in and say he, she's guilty of of murdering this woman as well. Now, uh he would point to the medication that was stolen from Esther's home as the weapon of choice. Uh the state of some of the bodies made the cause of death hard to determine. But the presence of Dalmine in some of them, as well as the fact that they were uh, the drug was not actually prescribed to them in the first place, started to lay the groundwork that would eventually be his entire case. Uh, Dorothea's defense lawyers was Kevin Climo and Peter Valton III, finished their defense that the people had died of natural causes, and if she was guilty of anything, it was stealing the money and then disposing of their bodies but not murder. They, they, they bring that up a lot in the court cases um, that she is guilty of theft. She is guilty. A con artist. Right, a con artist. But not a murderer. But not a murderer. That, that's two entirely different things. Um, eventually, the jury's going to hear all of the evidence and they're ready to deliberate. Were they able to identify all of the bodies? Uh, yes, even there was there was there was one that was mutilated that was the the head was removed, but they were eventually able to to identify who it was. Yeah, okay. identify everyone. Now, after everything was all the both sides of the case were presented, this is where we meet uh, Jesse Sanchez. Now, Jesse Sanchez was a juror in this case, and he's really going to leave kind of an indelible mark on this. Now, this is a capital offense, which at the time is up for the death penalty, but for days and days, the jury deliberates and they deliberate and Jesse will stay steadfast in his beliefs that there's not enough evidence. Because of that, the jury was not moving forward. In fact, between July 15th and August 27th of 1992, the jury was deadlocked mostly around the assertion by Sanchez that there was not enough evidence to convict her 
uh, in a death penalty case. Now, eventually on August 27th, the jury was asked by the judge if further time would lead to a decision, and they all said no, that it, it wouldn't matter how long they debated. We, we have one person holding out. Um, the verdict was then read, and Dorothea Montavo Puente was found guilty of three murders. Leona Carpenter, in the second degree, Barry Fink, and Dorothy Miller, both in the first degree. She was also found guilty with special circumstances. And this would mean that she would not automatically get the death penalty. So she's not found guilty of either Ruth, Esther, or Bert's murder. So even though the jury said they couldn't come to a conclusion, they do? Is what I'm understanding here? Right. And I think from my understanding of the court documents and and the testimony and then from interviews by the jury panel, the jury was, in this case, was almost 100%. She was guilty of all of them. But this one person, this Jesse Sanchez, was a holdout. He was a holdout on the other cases. So after all of this time deliberating, deliberating, the rest of the jurors got Jesse to agree to these three cases. You know, um, Leona Carpenter being in the second degree and both Barry and Dorothy being in the first degree. And the fact that they couldn't come to a decision on the other one actually caused that part of the case to be a mistrial. Okay. Now, um, she was convicted with special circumstances, which will play into her sentencing. Even though she's found guilty and the prosecution was relieved, some of the stronger cases were those the juries could not decide on, eventually being sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. She's going to live out the remainder of her days in the Women's Correctional Facility in Chowchilla, California, which is in Central California. It's kind of between uh, Merced and Fresno. Uh, at her sentencing hearing, uh, Dorothea's daughter that had been given up for adoption actually pleaded with the court to spare her mother's life. They had just met in August of 1988, about four months before Dorothea would actually be arrested for murder. She found her? Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I it guess her name was Linda, and Linda had spent uh, quite a bit of time trying to find her mom, found her, and I, I, I guess they had a short exchange, and then soon after, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's determined late by forensic anthropologist um, from UC Davis and Detective Cabrera had found some um, disturbing evidence on the bodies that were uncovered in the backyard. Uh, when the sixth body was being exhumed, there was a curious mounding of dirt by the legs. Now, uh, Detective Cabrera believed, and his theories were supported by anthropologists, that those mounds should not be there. If the body was dead and buried, the, bo- the dirt would clump around the bodies and remain tight. So this mounding around the bodies appears only when a body is buried alive and struggles against the dirt. Uh, Detective Cabrera is actually going to later reveal his own theory that some of the victims were that were given the drug cocktail weren't actually dead when Dorothea had them buried. It actually will put them to sleep. And then Dorothea using something like a pillow would suffocate them to death. She's then going to bury them in the back backyard. But this person number, the sixth victim is actually going to wake up after being buried. And and instead is going to suffocate just feet below the ground and being able to get out. Now, and again, all of this takes takes place in a backyard in a house that's only a few blocks away from the state capitol. Dorothea Puente will die on March 27th, 2011 at the age of 82 in Chowchilla Women's Correctional Facility of Natural Causes. Uh, in November 15th, 1988, issue of the Sacramento Bee, uh, runs an article after the seventh body had been unearthed that interviewed Peggy Nicholson. Uh, and she was a caseworker at the St. Paul Senior Center that had actually sent people to Dorothea's boarding house. She says, quote, she, meaning Dorothea Puente, was the best the system had to offer. She said she was a widow and had a big house and said it was her time to give back to other people. That was her story, and I didn't have any reason to doubt it, unquote. In the same paper, another caseworker from another agency stated that she had sent more than 19 clients to 1426 F Street, but had stopped once she heard Dorothea verbally assaulting a client. Nursing homes are somewhat regulated by rooming and board homes, rarely are, and oftentimes 
the only refuge for those that have nowhere else to go, like many of Dorothea's victims. Some repercussions of this case were that, when the true extent of these crimes became clear, the state assembly went into action and enacted legislation that would help to make sure that those people who worked with vulnerable populations would be kept from abusing those that are in the most need. These same discussions were happening on a national level, as John Sharp, the tenant who had lied to the police because he was forced to by Dorothea, testified in front of Congress, and soon new legislation was enacted into the Social Security Act to make sure that people would not be able to capitalize on the misfortunes of those that were receiving benefits. So this was to keep people from cashing other people's Social Security checks. On a somewhat lighter note, uh, if not more morbid one, uh, while in prison, Dorothea corresponded with an author and performance artist named Shane Bugby and put out a cookbook for her recipes and, or with her recipes and information about the case and her life. It's called Cooking with a Serial Killer, Recipes from Dorothea Puente. Uh, Bugby was at one time also John Wayne Gacy's agent for artwork and had a traveling sideshow that showed off serial killer memorabilia like um, the truck of Ed Gein and also his headstone. Although the recipes really are just regular recipes. Yeah, there, there's nothing... I mean, it is like somebody's regular cookbook. Um, it's got a decent rating on Amazon right now. Um, but if you dig into the reviews, most of the reviews written in there, um, people will comment on it. It's a, it's a really... They bought it as a like a joker yeah a joke gift and it's um also people commented the recipes were okay but it's it's a not a really good book about the case get your recipes elsewhere right right um also uh, the 1426 f street was bought by a couple for two hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, and then renovated they uh then opened it up for one day for an old sacramento home tour uh, it actually has since been featured in the episode of Ghost Adventures. Um, there's also a link to that on our show notes for this episode. Um, also, Detective Cabrera has actually used this home as a training tool for local agents on on investigative techniques and things like that. So, Thank you for listening to our Dorothea Puente episode. And uh, thank you to my co-host, Jessica. You're welcome. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cali True Crime. We'd also like to thank our quality control manager, Melanie Duncan. Don't forget to check out our website at californiatruecrime.com. You can get our show notes. You can also be a Patreon supporter of the show. Get some bonus content and some giveaways at different levels. This has been a production of Way Grimace. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.